us in worship. And thank you for your continued prayers, just to give you an update. It's been another interesting week at the Herod House. Emma's been doing okay. Um, some of the oxygen problems seem to have leveled out, so we're very thankful for that. Samuel was diagnosed with the flu earlier in the week, but he's doing better, so glad to hear that. And our, our chihuahuas are doing okay. So we're pressing on. We are pressing on. I'm going to do something a little bit out of the ordinary this morning, and I'll explain why in just a moment. But I do want to ask you to open your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 6. Now, you'll notice this is different from the text that is printed in your bulletin. Throughout the week, I'd been preparing to preach from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 9 through 12. Friday night, as, as I was going to bed, there was just a starting to be a stirring in my heart, and I couldn't get Isaiah 6 one through seven out of my mind. And so even yesterday morning, as I was trying to finish up, put the final preparations on the first Thessalonians, um, I just couldn't, once again, get Isaiah 6, one through seven out of my heart and mind. So that's why we're going to be in Isaiah 6 this morning. I believe the Lord has a purpose, and I certainly know with confidence He has a message for His people. I say that because any time God's Word is read, God's got a message for His people. He is speaking to us. So let's hear the word of the Lord this morning from Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of His robe filled the temple. Above Him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me! For I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes, my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Would you bow with me in prayer? Gracious Lord, thank you, Father, that we will have eternity to sing your praises. Indeed, we have more than 10,000 reasons to give glory to you. And this morning, Father, I pray that you would open our eyes to see your glory, your holiness afresh. Father, I pray that with some trepidation. For I recognize that even if a, a man of the stature of Isaiah recognizes that he is dead in your presence, Lord, who are we to even ask that we would see your glory so, Father, even with that trepidation, I come, thankfully, in the name of Jesus. 
For I recognize there is no other way that we can enter into your presence except through Jesus, who is the bridge, the mediator that brings us into your presence. So, Father, along with my brothers and sisters in the faith, in the name of Jesus Christ, we ask you this morning to give us eyes to see your glory. Allow our hearts to take in who you are and incline us to serve and to follow you in holiness. Grant this, Father, so that the world may know that the world will see the truth of who you are and they will rejoice in the glory of Jesus Christ. For it is in his name that I pray. Amen. I've never forgotten the story that the late Calvin Miller shared one time in a chapel at Southwestern Seminary. Calvin Miller had served for over 30 years as the pastor of First Baptist Church in Omaha, Nebraska. He was an author, a painter, truly a renaissance man. He told the story of many years ago he had finished speaking at a retreat center outside of Denver, Colorado. And as he was making his way down the mountain on one of the highways, he noticed that the the temperature gauge of his engine began pegging to the right, hitting that red line like a, a staccato note in music, pinging it. And it wasn't long before he started seeing smoke come out from under the hood. But he said, thankfully in God's providence, he could see a, a gas station on the horizon. So he was able to coast in and come to a stop as the car died. He admitted not being a professional mechanic, he didn't know exactly what was wrong, but he had a feeling he would need a radiator hose and someone to put it on. He walked in the gas station and he said there behind the counter was a young man. Looked like he may have been freshly out of high school. And he walked up to the counter and he said, young man, I think I am in need of a mechanic and a radiator hose. Can you help me out? He said the young man didn't say anything. He simply motioned for him to look at the store behind him. Calvin Miller turned around and he saw that unless he needed a sugar fix of Twinkies or cupcakes, he was in serious trouble. Because there was no hose or mechanic within that service station. Calvin looked back at the young man and said, well, what, what do you recommend I do? The young man said, you might want to give Big Jim a try. Big Jim is behind the gas station here. He has a shed and he collects all sorts of auto tools. So why don't you check out Big Jim? Calvin said, thank you, I think I'll do that. He walked around and sure enough, there was a, a shed there displaying hoses of all various sorts and sizes as they dangled from the ceiling like meat in a meat locker. As he knocked on the door, there came a man who truly lived up to his name. Big Jim truly was a big man. What can I do for you, he said. Calvin said, I believe you can help me out. I am in need of a radiator hose and someone to put it on. Can you help me? Big Jim said, yeah, I think I can. There's something confident when you hear somebody say, yeah, I think I can. And within a half hour, Big Jim had placed a radiator hose on the car and the car was ready to go. Calvin said, what do I owe you? Big, Big Jim said, I reckon just pay me $25. We'll be good to go. I'm always glad to help somebody out. Calvin Miller said he opened his wallet, opened the fold to his emergency stash, and gave Big Jim $100. Big Jim said, That's, you, you're paying me too much, mister. Calvin Miller said, no, I'm not. He said, to give somebody money when they've got exactly what you need and are willing to help. He said, that's a blessing. If somebody gives you exactly what you need and they're willing to help, that is indeed a great blessing. And I believe this passage points us to the truth that God gives us exactly what we need at the moment we need it. And there is no greater help we could find other than the Lord God Himself. 
God is good and gracious to do that. In the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus once made these statements. If a son comes to his father and says to him, Daddy, would you give me some bread? I'm hungry. What father among you would give his son a stone? And then Jesus asked, what father among you, if his son comes to you and says, Daddy, I'm hungry, would you give me a fish to eat? Would that father dare give him a snake? No, he wouldn't. If you, as sinful human beings, know how to give your children good things that they need, how much more will the Father in heaven, who is gracious and good, give you exactly what you need when you need it? This passage in Isaiah echoes that truth. That God is good and gives us what we need exactly when we need it. Verse 1 sets the context. Notice it is clear that in the year that King Uzziah died, Isaiah saw the Lord seated upon the throne. Don't read over that phrase, in the year that King Uzziah died too quickly. Uzziah was a good king. He had led Israel into a golden age of prosperity. He was a king who pointed people to follow Yahweh. He was a king the people loved, a king the people followed, and his death was a national tragedy. It had thrown the nation into a sense of uproar. Because if you know anything about the history of Israel, the secession of a king was always a questionable turn of events. Who would follow him? Would it be his son, his grandson? Would he be a good king? Would he lead people to follow Yahweh? Needless to say, the nation was thrown into a state of chaos, wondering what will happen. And the chaos that was played out on a national level was echoed in the heart of Isaiah. Isaiah had served as an ambassador, a, a liaison, an official in the court of Uzziah. So for him, this was not just a question of national security. It was one of personal investment. What would happen to him? Would the new king want to retain, retain his services? Would he be thrown out or even at worst killed as someone that is viewed as a threat to the new king and with all that uncertainty what does Isaiah do he begins to seek out God going to the temple we know that because he speaks that he sees the throne of God and he speaks of the threshold shaking at the voice of God that in his unclarity he gets a clear vision of who God is he sees God in a way that no one before him had seen God you see, Moses had experienced God at the burning bush. He had gone up on Mount Sinai with 24 elders, and they had been in the presence of God, but they had not seen the glory of God in his throne room. But here is Isaiah in the very throne room of God. Joshua, a great military leader, had stood, and one night he encountered the captain of the Lord's army. And this was so intimidating to Joshua that Joshua fell on his face before this theophany, this presence of God. But Joshua did not see the very throne room and the glory of God's being. We can also look back and say that Job had heard God out of the storm, but Job did not see God in his throne room, high and exalted. And in this time of crisis, Isaiah encounters God. It tells me that the greatest thing we need in our time of crisis is God himself. 
I want you to notice that God does not give Isaiah the grand plan. He doesn't say, Isaiah, this is how it will work out. He doesn't say, Isaiah, calm your nerves. God just reveals who he is because in our time of need, God is what we need. And I would even go further to say that even in our times of serenity, it is God that we need. I would even say God is in any time we experience the greatest thing that we need. So the question is this, why don't we seek Him? In our times of crisis, why do we not turn unto the Lord? I think some of the best advertisements on television today are produced and made by the insurance company Geico. Many times I will mute the TV until the commercial comes on. And then I'll watch the Geico ads. One of my favorites is set uh, kind of that 1980s horror film where you have four teenagers that are on the run. They're running in front of this house that is clearly haunted and ominous. And it's at night. And there's a car in front of the house that's running. And one of the girls says, why don't we just get in the car and drive away? And one of the boys says, are you crazy? Let's hide behind the chainsaws. And so they go and they huddle behind the chainsaws. Church, how often do we see God? He's there. He's available. He is welcoming us. But we say, no, I'm going to run the other way and seek what I believe will be my security. I have no doubt that many of the vices in which we engage are simply attempts to find security apart from God. Rather than going to God, we find the things that we think will anesthetize our pain. And rather than just anesthetizing our pain, they end up causing us more pain. Let us follow the example of Isaiah who goes into the temple of God and experiences that God is the greatest thing that he needs. There are four truths about God that emerge from this experience Isaiah had. First we see in verse 1 that God is sovereign. Now that's church language that rolls off our tongues very easily, but I fear has not taken root in our hearts. To say that God is sovereign means that He is in control of every molecule, of every atom, of everything that exists in the universe. This is emphasized in verse 1, that God is doing what? He is sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. Understand that in the loss of Uzziah, he sees God seated upon a throne. What a visual reminder that even though the throne of Judah was now vacant, the throne of the universe was still very much occupied. That even though the king of Judah had died, the king of the universe was still, still very much alive and well and ruling. The universe is under God's control and we need to remind ourselves that His rule is not a democracy. God's will is not up for vote. It is God and God's sovereign will that will be accomplished. And we can save ourselves much anxiety, not just by saying that truth, but by believing it, that God is sovereign and in control of all things. I love the story told of the late Luciano Pavarotti. We're known as one of the greatest tenors to ever sing. He said that one time he was making a debut, a debut in New York City. He was going to be singing. There was a young woman that was producing and directing the evening, and she was nervous as could be. This was her first time on the big stage, as it were. And she was running behind the scenes, being sure everybody was ready. And Pavarotti was standing there, and he had warmed up. He was ready to sing, but he noticed that she was anxious and going to and fro. So he stopped her for a moment, and he asked her, 
what's the matter? That's, that's as good as it gets, Italian-wise, okay. She said, I'm, I, Mr. Pavarotti, I'm, I'm nervous. What if something goes wrong? This has got to go well. And he shook his head and he said, don't worry. I sing. I love that. Don't worry. I'm going to sing. When I start singing and I start doing my thing, all the other stuff is not going to matter. Don't worry. God says, don't worry, I am sovereign. Don't worry, God says, I'm doing my thing. Don't worry, you are my child, and I am working all things for the greater good and for my glory. Remind yourself continually that God is seated upon His throne, and there is never any issue that He will abdicate His throne. Never. God is not only sovereign, He is majestic. This is emphasized in two ways. Notice the description of the throne, high and lifted up. The grandeur of a monarch in the ancient Near East was signified by how high the throne is. There is no throne higher than God's. But notice also the description of the train or the hem of his robe. It filled the temple. That's an amazing statement. The temple itself was huge. Huge. A huge building. Much bigger than this, this area we're seated in now. And the very hem of God's garment fills it. That was a way of symbolizing the authority of the monarch. The longer the king's robe was, the more authority the king possessed. And this is why. You don't move very well when your robe has a long hem. A long train. Now, I've been in the ministry almost 30 years. Needless to say, I've performed just a few weddings. And at the rehearsal, one of the things that we always have to go through if the bride is wearing a, a, a gown that has a wedding dress that has a long train is who's going to fluff and move the train when she turns around. We shan't not have an unfluffed train at the wedding. So as she turns, bridesmaid, okay, maid of honor, you step, you turn, you fluff, and get ready. Why? Because you don't move quickly in one of those. When you've got a long train, you don't move fast. This summer, the 2020 Olympic Games in Tokyo, watch the 100-meter dash and see how many of them are wearing a robe with a long train when they run. You don't move. So how in the world does a long train show the authority of a king? It's this way. He doesn't have to move to accomplish his will. He simply has to speak. He speaks and it's done. That's the authority of the king. He doesn't have to lift a finger. He speaks a word and his will is done. Now, we become enamored with how much power we have. We live in the world of Alexa and Siri and Cortana, and we speak a word. Siri, turn on the radio. And it plays. Unless your Siri is mad at you, and then she says no. Turn on the light. The light comes on. When you start feeling proud and like you have power to speak and things happen, try to call your cat to come to you. You learn real quick, your power to speak and make things happen is very limited. Seriously. If you don't own an Alexa, walk into the room and say, Alexa, appear. Nothing will happen. Our words have no creative power, but our 
God is so authoritatively powerful that He speaks and things happen. He speaks a word and the universe comes into being. He speaks a word and light comes into being. And we see this evident in Jesus also. In the Gospel of Matthew chapter 8, a centurion, a soldier comes to Jesus and he says, My servant is paralyzed. Will you please heal him? Jesus gets up and gets ready to go to heal this, this servant. And the centurion soldier says, wait a minute, Jesus. I know what it's like to have people under my command. If I say a word, I have sergeants who go and they do what I ask. Jesus, you don't even have to come to the house. You say the word and my servant will be healed. Jesus says, I've not seen faith like this in Israel. You can go now. Your servant's well. Jesus speaks. And the servant is healed. Our God is one who is majestic in his authority that by speaking accomplishes his purpose. We see next the, the third aspect of God's character is that he is a holy God. Verses 2 and 3 we are introduced to the seraphim. We don't know exactly what these angelic beings look like. Seraphim is a Hebrew word that speaks of shimmering or of light. We know they had six wings, two of them they are using to fly, two they are covering their faces, and with two they cover their midsections. And they are calling out to one another antiphonally. That means one side says something and the other side answers. And we see the content of the message that they are saying before the throne of God, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Now understand holiness is a word that encompasses all of who God's character is he is holy he is set apart there is none like him he is different in his being unique in his character and un unimaginable in his actions there is none like God he is totally other the uniqueness is shown in the next phrase holy 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 is the Lord of hosts it is the phrase Yahweh Sabaoth the Lord of the armies it speaks to all authority. Part of God's holiness is there is none like Him, not only in His being, who is likened to our God. Gracious, kind, compassionate, just, merciful. It's not only in His, His actions. Who can speak and cause things to happen? Only God can. But He is holy in His authority in that every authority that we know is under God's command. Whether it be in heaven, powers, principalities, whether it be on earth, everything is under God's command. In World War II, General Dwight Eisenhower was known as the supreme commander of the Allied forces. He had command over the British, over the Canadians, over every army that was engaged in the battle against the axis of evil. That power paled in comparison to God. He is the Lord of hosts. And then we come to see a next thing about him. Not only is he holy, he is glorious. In verse 3, there is what's called a step parallelism. In other words, it takes an idea in the first part that God is the holy, the Lord of hosts. And now it takes it a next step. The whole earth is full of his glory. Glory represents the character. It's what gives one honor. It's what sets a person apart. We could say that, take the great basketball player LeBron James, his glory is the way he plays basketball. It sets him apart. 
You could take the great maestro Beethoven, what sets him apart? The symphonies that he would write. Take Leonardo da Vinci, what sets him apart? It's, it's the way he would work, the Sistine Chapel, or the great works. But our God's glory is so great, it is not contained to one thing. It is so great that it fills the entire earth. That's how great God is. Now, the amazing thing is that you look at the statement that is made at verse 3. The whole earth is full of His glory. But then in other places, you read a prayer. For example, Psalm 72, 19 says, May the earth be filled with your glory. So the question is, what gives? Here, the whole earth is full of your glory. But then there is a prayer that the earth would be filled with it. I think the answer is found in that, that prayer. May the old, whole earth be filled with your glory is that we would see and recognize it. In Allentown, Pennsylvania, there is the Allentown Museum of Art. Hanging there for many, many years was a portrait of a young woman that was said to have been done by the studio of Rembrandt. In other words, it wasn't painted by the Dutch master, but it was painted by someone whom he trained, one of his pupils. This past year, that portrait was taken down and taken to a, a restorer, someone that would restore the painting, clean it up a little bit. And she noticed something, that this painting had been covered over with layer upon layer of varnish. So she began stripping away the varnish, layer by layer, strip by strip. And she noticed something. It really was by Rembrandt. It really was a work done by the Dutch master himself. But you could only see it when the layers were peeled off. Sin keeps us from seeing the glory of God around us. If we want to see the glory of the Lord around us, we need to pray, Lord, open our eyes, remove sin that blinds us, that, that covers over your glory, that it may be seen. In fact, when you are in the presence of God, one of the things you recognize is your sinfulness. That you can't be in His presence. Look at Isaiah's response, verse 5. Woe is me, for I am lost. That word woe is cursed. He says, I'm cursed. Lost means destroyed. Lost means to be dead. He says, Lord, I'm a man of unclean lips. I am dead in your presence. Now, it's been debated what is meant by saying that he's a man of unclean lips among a people of unclean lips. Some have said that apparently Isaiah had a language problem, that he cussed like a sailor, and if he did, so does the people. But I think that's too superficial. When Isaiah said, I'm a man of unclean lips, he was saying, what I say does not match how I'm living. He's confessing hypocrisy. In front of God, sin is revealed. He is like a light that shines in the darkness. His holiness is like an MRI of the soul that reveals what's going on. And Isaiah says, Lord, my walk does not match my talk I'm dead that's the scary thing about being in the presence of the Lord he is holy and the truth is none of us would be able to stand in his presence 
And we like to think that we can be good enough, that we can cover things over. We cannot fool God. The only way that we can be in His presence is for God to act on our behalf. And you see, that's what He does. One of the seraphim takes a set of tongs and removes and a coal from the altar. The altar is where sacrifice was made. Where animals would be killed representing the consequence of death. And he takes that burning coal and he applies it to the area of sin. And he says, Isaiah, your guilt's taken away. Your sin atoned for. The wound of sin cauterized. Remember, the sacrifices of the Old Testament were simply preparing us to understand Jesus. That Jesus is the Lamb sacrificed for our sins. This altar is setting the stage to understand that. That the only way we can be forgiven is if the death and the resurrection of Jesus is applied to our sin by faith. How can guilt be atoned for? By the death and resurrection of Jesus. How can our sins be forgiven? Only by the death and the resurrection of Jesus. How is it applied? By faith. God takes the initiative. And notice Isaiah doesn't deny his need. He doesn't say, no, 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 don't do that. He receives it. That's the only way we can be in the presence of this God who is sovereign, majestic, holy, and glorious. Sin is what prevents us from getting what we need. And God graciously provides the way that we can come into His presence. When my mother was living and I would visit her, there would always be odd jobs for me to do around the house. Even after my dad died that just increased and one day one weekend I had gone down to visit her and I wasn't I really wasn't prepared she asked if I would take a look in the gutters to be sure they were cleaned out and any leaves could be scooped out and I said mom I'll be glad to but I just I didn't bring any extra clothes to wear because I was dressed fairly nice and she said I think it's okay because your dad had some coat coveralls that he would wear and they're still in the utility room sure thing mom so I go and I get into coveralls and I'm able to do what was needed. Dad had provided exactly what was needed for the task at hand. Just as our Heavenly Father has provided the remedy for our sin. To be clothed in Christ. One day, every person will stand in front of God. And on that day, the question is, will you be ready when you see the holiness of God? The only hope of being ready is to be clothed in Christ. Mr. Gibson quoted from Hebrews 12 earlier today. Without holiness, no one can see the Lord. Our only hope of holiness is Jesus. Will you come to Him? I want to ask you to bow your heads with me, if you will. Nathan and I will be standing at the front if you need to respond. This, this morning, maybe you recognize that you've never professed faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And you want to step forward today to take either me or Nathan by the hand. And what we will do is we will talk with you and we will schedule a time, maybe later in the week or as soon as we can, that we can sit down with you and really have a discussion about what it means to follow Jesus. 
But this morning may be that initial step you need to take. For some of us, we've believed in Christ for a long time. But the reality is we don't take holiness seriously. And if we were quite truthful, just like Isaiah was, we'd say, you know what, rather than running to God, I try to hide. I may hide behind anger. I may hide behind a whole host of things that are not of God. Today, will you stop hiding and come to Him? Father, you are gracious and good. We confess that we need you. We need you to cleanse us. We can't cleanse ourselves, Father. We need you to do it. So will you work this day, O oh Lord, that we would come to you and know what it means to hear you say your guilt is gone. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.